So the idea that, that somebody is a monster is convenient, but it's very rare, rarely the case that somebody is purely evil. Zhang Ngao was killed because he appeared in the film, The Killing Field. I think the UN were genuinely very arrogant, believing they were coming in with a clean slate. There's an enduring conspiracy theory about the murder of Hang Noor. Many believe that the Khmer Rouge leader Pol Pot had him killed. That suggests that Pol Pot's power stretched from the jungles of Cambodia to the streets of Los Angeles. It's an idea I find wildly implausible, and so do my friends and colleagues who know 1990s Cambodia as well as I do. The person probably most responsible for fueling that conspiracy? It was Kang Gek better known as Comrade Doik. Doik was the head of Tool Slang, the prison and interrogation center run by the Khmer Rouge. He was put on trial in Cambodia's Khmer Rouge Tribunal. That's where he spread the Pol Pot killed Hang Noor rumor, one that had originally emerged at the time of Noor's killing in 1996. Welcome to the second episode of Finding Comrade Doik, which is episode 10 of Who Killed Hang Noor? This is a real-time and crowdsourced podcast in which we explore lingering questions about the murder and issues connected to the legacy of Dr. Hang S. Noor. Best known for his role in the killing fields, Noor was also a doctor, a political activist, and a businessman. I'm continuing my conversation with Nick Dunlop, the Irish photographer who found Comrade Doik in 1999. He wrote The Lost Executioner about the experience. His book has tense, dramatic moments, but it's also a very thoughtful chronicle of Nick's relationship to Doik's story, Cambodia's story, and the shades of gray between evil and the moral high ground. Once again, full disclosure, Nick Dunlop is a friend of mine. Comrade Doik was arrested by the Cambodian government in May 1999. Ten years would go by before the opening of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, the ECCC. That's the official name of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Comrade Doik was case number one, the very first Khmer Rouge official to go on trial. It's November 2009. The voice you hear is a translator at the ECCC. If we talk about Pol Pot, he was the highest person. He really designed the theory and the line to destroy, to kill people heinously. I believe that Pol Pot used a trick, a kind of trick used by Stalin when he killed Trotsky in order to kill Hang Ngao and me and my wife. Luckily, I survived. Unfortunately, my wife died. Hang Ngao was killed because he appeared in the film, The Killing Field. That's the quote that reignited conspiracy theories about Hang Noor's murder. Nick and I both think it's utter nonsense. So he's had a decade to sit in his cell thinking about his story, thinking about his day in court, if it was ever to come, he would have thought about all of this stuff over and over again. He would have had lots of time to reflect. So I, I take it with a large dose of salt. I think the Khmer Rouge were too inward looking to be that organized, to organize an assassination on the other side of the planet. I just don't think that's possible. Or at least I think it's highly unlikely. Here are some details from Nick's book, The Lost Executioner. Doik's wife was murdered and he was injured in November 1995 
in a break-in at their home. He referenced that in his testimony. Doik suspected rivals from within the Khmer Rouge. Just three months later, in February 1996, Hang Nor was murdered. To me, the timing says it all. Doik was probably conflating his personal loss of his wife, allegedly by the Khmer Rouge, with the extended Cambodian community's shared loss of Hang Nor. He was essentially saying, the Khmer Rouge traumatized me the same way they traumatized you. Clearly, Noor's murder triggered unresolved trauma for Cambodians around the world. It's an issue I'm going into in the next episode of this podcast. Doik's belief may have been genuine, born of his grief. It could have also been strategy. Possibly it's about Doik positioning himself closer to the likes of Hang Noor, who was clearly probably one of the most famous Cambodians after Sihanouk. So it was very much a for a Western audience. And remember, he, he was very aware of his audience in court. So that, I think that's very important. If you look through a political lens, this notion that Pol Pot killed Hang Noor because he starred in the killing fields and that made the Khmer Rouge look bad, that makes zero sense. You have to consider everything that happened in the 12 years between 1984, when the movie came out, and Noor's murder in 1996. I've put a timeline of this on the webpage, so I'm going to make this quick. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989, and soon the Soviet Union dissolved. Cambodia was no longer a proxy battlefield for the great powers, and funding for the Khmer Rouge dried up. Cambodia's four warring factions, including the Khmer Rouge, signed a peace deal in 1991, which brought a massive United Nations peacekeeping mission into Cambodia, the largest humanitarian intervention in history at that point. The Khmer Rouge later withdrew from that peace plan. That was a dumb move because the UN elections were a massive success. A new government was formed, thousands of Khmer Rouge foot soldiers defected to the government, hundreds of thousands of refugees came home, all while the Khmer Rouge leadership had sidelined themselves. They're sitting in the jungle and Cambodia is opening up and getting all this investment and Pol Pot is shaking his fist at the sky saying, you know what, this is all the fault of that damn actor. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I agree, absolutely. If that was under the orders of Pol Pot, you'd wonder, well, why? I mean, of all the Cambodians, why would you go to the great lengths to have somebody assassinated in the United States? To what end? To what purpose? After Doig's testimony, the U.S. State Department responded by reiterating what it said in 1996. They saw no political connection to Noor's murder. Two last points I'll make about Doig's quote. One, the Khmer Rouge had their own propaganda machine, which was Khmer Rouge Radio. These were shortwave broadcasts that were monitored by embassies and news outlets. If Pol Pot hated Hang Noor, we would have heard about it. I don't have all the records, but most of the time Khmer Rouge Radio was blasting Hun Sen. Two, as we learned in Episode 7, Hang Noor traveled to Cambodia on a regular basis for his humanitarian work and his business interests, throughout 1994 and 95. If the Khmer Rouge wanted to kill him, they could have done it much more easily in Cambodia. Los Angeles would just be so needlessly risky and challenging. Doik's quote was staggeringly implausible if you know all the context. If anything, it should redirect us to a more compelling question. Who would have the motive and the means to kill Hang Noor in America. If you don't buy the robbery theory, and I'm not sure I do, 
there has to be someone else. The launch of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was considered a real win by the international human rights community. The logic was that a genuine peace would never take root in Cambodia without justice. The Khmer Rouge had to face accountability. Certainly, Doik's story offers a compelling narrative to Western observers. He decided to come clean because he had become Christian? I, I mean, I think that that has to be a central part of it. As I say in the book, you know, central to any kind of Christian teaching is telling the truth and confession. And also, unlike Buddhism, you can, well, the popular understanding of Buddhism is that in order to pay back your sins, you're talking about reincarnation. It can't be done in this lifetime. But uh, with Christianity, it affords you forgiveness immediately. Uh, you can be born again, which is what happened to Doik. During his trial, Doik repeatedly read statements taking responsibility for his actions as head of Tul Slang. And he repeatedly offered apologies to the families of the victims. I'll put some links on the webpage. Nick attended the trial at length, and he was put off by the narrative that was developing around Doik. It was all about remorse and redemption. Here's this exotic creature, this killer, sadistic killer, who appears to have done a complete vault face, owned up to his crimes, confessed, expressed remorse and, and sought forgiveness. You know, I thought, how compelling a story is that? But I think it's about, again, what I think a lot of, I don't know how you feel, MP, but I feel that very often we journalists, we tend to impose our own narratives on stories. We, we tell our stories back to us without really engaging with realities that are radically different to our own. After all, a story arc about redemption comes from looking at Doik's past through a Christian lens, or at least a Western lens soaked in Christianity. Cambodians, Nick observed, just wanted to know what happened to their loved ones. I mean, I, I remember feeling rather disgusted with myself because I became preoccupied about whether, like most of the foreigners, I think, we became preoccupied with whether his remorse was genuine. And then when I put it to one of Cambodian who lost, I think, two brothers in S21. He said, look, I don't care, you know, if he's genuine remorse. I really don't care. All I'm interested in is, is he telling the truth? That's all that matters to me. And that sort of put me in my place. As virtually anyone who followed the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, the ECCC, will tell you, it was massively flawed. It was a hybrid tribunal with both Cambodian and international judges that took place in Phnom Penh. Hun Sen played non-stop political games to undermine it. Besides Doik, it only reached verdicts against two of the most senior Khmer Rouge leaders. I haven't gone into these names, but they are Kusampan Pan and Nun Cheya. By 2009, they were geriatric old men. As with Doik, they eventually got life in prison. That took 16 years and $337 million. Many have asked if it was worth it. Some will disagree, but to Nick, the entire tribunal was mostly for the benefit of the international community. I don't know what the purpose of the tribunal was in the first place. I think it was highly political, which the people who worked in it, I mean, a lot of good people worked in the tribunal, but a lot of opportunists worked in the tribunal. And I think that a lot of civil society did their best to make it the process relevant to ordinary Cambodians. I'm not convinced it was. To many, 
Hun Sen's manipulation of the tribunal was an indirect admission of guilt. He had been a Khmer Rouge regimental commander in the eastern sector, according to Human Rights Watch. Clearly, he wouldn't want any Khmer Rouge to take the stand and point a finger at him. Nick makes no apologies for Hun Sen, but Nick is a guy who thinks a lot about narratives. You see, after the Khmer Rouge were overthrown, they survived on covert funding from the U.S. and China throughout much of the 1980s. They were even allowed to keep their seat at the U.N. for years. Hun Sen, meanwhile, had been fighting the Khmer Rouge since he defected in 1978, decades before the ECCC came along. And I think the U.N. were very genuinely very arrogant, believing they were coming in with a clean slate without really understanding that the UN has had a long and fairly grim history in Cambodia and it's been involved in things that really the UN had no business being involved in and being used very often by big powers behind the scenes. The man who actually brought the Khmer Rouge to the end to actually destroy the Khmer Rouge movement or can claim to that is Hun Sen, not the United Nations, but the UN felt that they could walk in there and lay down the rules when the UN were used to rebuild the, Cam the Khmer Rouge in 1979. So to, to walk in there, to say that, you know, Cambodians are corrupt, Hun Sen is a former Khmer Rouge. I mean, the guy's, yeah, he is a product of his environment, certainly. I'm not defending him for a moment. However, we are not the guys in white caps either. It had been 10 years since they'd seen each other, but Comrade Doik clearly remembered Nick. As the Khmer Rouge Tribunal went on, there were moments when both he and Nick caught each other's eye. And he peered through the glass and he saw me and he smiled and then he went like this, sort of a US military salute at me and I returned the gesture and that was it. But you know, I think there was that one time and then another time I was filing out after the proceedings for one day and again he caught me and I looked up at him and I suddenly felt really intimidated. I thought, oh God, you know, this is, it's really unpleasant to be anywhere near this man. Not, not because of any sort of revulsion, but, but just, he knew how to intimidate people. He was uh, very manipulative. As I mentioned in the YouTube links reveal, during his trial, Doik repeatedly took responsibility for his actions as head of Tool Slang and apologized to the families of the victims. When you think about it, Doik was confessing with an earnestness that he would have demanded of someone he interrogated at Tool Slang. He was trying to purge himself from his association with the Khmer Rouge. Who's to say if it was genuine, strategic, or a little bit of both? But he's also, here's a man who's just, you know, a strategic thinker who had stayed alive. Even when he was at the heart of the Khmer Rouge killing machine, he managed to, you know, operate and, and see you know, survive. I mean, he was a survivor as well. Nick is still based in Bangkok. He doesn't go back to Cambodia much, partly because it's been so badly overdeveloped by the Chinese, and partly because that chapter of his life has simply run its course. One thing that's hard to wrap your head around, so many Khmer Rouge joined the revolution because it was meant to be about liberation. They were infatuated by the idea that abolishing capitalism would, in modern terms, elevate human rights. So the idea that, that somebody is a monster 
is convenient, but it's very rare, rarely the case that somebody is purely evil. Comrade Doik had deeply internalized the revolution. He was the top executioner for the Khmer Rouge. To him, the violence served a higher purpose. To most of us, killing the people in order to save the people is absurd. It's sociopathic. But Nick found himself constantly reminded in his years following Comrade Doik that the Khmer Rouge were just people. This journey isn't about going, getting closer to them, but realizing they're actually much closer to us and that they are us. Given the wrong set of circumstances in times of great extremity, we all have the capacity to carry out horrific acts with varying degrees, of course. But I think that's the sort of the ultimate recognition, really, is, the, is to understand that Doik was a, was a man, you know. One of the things I learned also is that I think that compassion and empathy are things that need to be actively nurtured, that these are not traits that come easily to us. I think empathy is something you have to work at. And I think it's, it's easy to obviously kill people if you reduce them to abstractions. Nick heard a rumor that after his conviction, Comrade Doik converted back to Buddhism. I haven't been able to verify that. So we don't know if he was resigned to Buddhist reincarnation or reconciled with the idea of a Christian afterlife, if that's important to any listeners. Comrade Doik died in September 2020 at the age of 77. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll hear more about the unresolved trauma from the Khmer Rouge period that continues to impact Cambodians and the second generation living in the U.S. My name is M.P. Noonan. Remember, this is a crowdsourced podcast, an experiment in journalism. If you knew Hang Noor personally and would like to contribute, even just an interesting anecdote, please get in touch. If you know any details about his murder you think are relevant, please get in touch. The best way to reach me is to email whokilledhangnor at gmail.com. Hang is H-A-I-N-G and Nor is N-G-O-R. Thank you again.